0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, my name is John Robinson. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty. It's, a, uh, it's always a joy and privilege to, to, uh, to be with you, to, to open the Word of God with you. Uh, We're going to be continuing on in our series, Faithful Presence, and this morning we get to talk about um, the concept of art. Art, in its many forms, is a a very fascinating thing. Uh, How can someone take wood and metal and copper and felt and with diligence, wisdom, and creativity create a piano? And then... How someone can sit down at that piano and play. And as, and as a result of hammers hitting strings, make and cause people to dance and sing and laugh and cry. Or how do words winsomely strung together invoke feelings and emotions, how can uh, these words uh, make memories come to life, or pictures come to mind of places that are only accessible through the imagination? Or how do finely ground particles put onto a canvas take you to another world, or elicit your imagination, or cause you to think more deeply about life. Art is a fascinating thing. As we consider uh, what it means for the Christian to be faithfully present in this world, we must consider one of its most widely treasured and highly controversial expressions, art. As we do that, we will pray and we'll get started this morning. Let's pray. Join me now. Creator God, your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. You are the one who creates all things. You spoke and the universe exploded into existence with explicit detail and beauty, truth and goodness. All that you created, God, is good. So create in our own hearts this day something good and true and beautiful again by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning in our text, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 28. If, it's, if you have those hardback black Bibles in front of you, we're on page 1. We're on page 1. It didn't go too far, all right? So join me now as we read the, the, the word of the Lord. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. In our our idea of being faithfully present with the idea of art and what the word of God tells us here in this creation mandate. Uh, the premise this morning is going to be in imaging our creator, we must create and everything we create communicates something. Therefore, as Christians, we should create things that are good, true, and beautiful. So we'll look at three points. We'll break this statement down into three points. Created creators communicating through creation and then create or pursue and pursue that which is good, true, and beautiful. So let's look first at created creators. We uh, see in the very beginning of Holy Scripture that God creates man. He creates man, and man is made in the image of God. The, the term for this is the imago Day, the image of God, right? We are made in the image of God. And God creates not out of necessity, not out of pressure, but out of, or out of some kind of like megalomaniac kind of need, but he creates because he is good, and he has to create. But in and because of his goodness... He creates our world, our universe, and us. And everything he created was good. God spoke and he created everything. Our world is filled. And it's filled because God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see that within this six-day creation period, right, Everything that we know and everything we experience and see and try to discover was made by God. And as human beings, we have a very, uh, if you will, intrinsic desire to learn more about this creation. We want to know more about what it is that is out there, right? We've discovered that there are over 10,000 species of birds. Most of them... Um, are are incredibly beautiful, incredibly complex, um, and and honestly, like, some of the most fascinating creatures, I feel like, uh, on the earth. We've discovered that that there are more than 12,000 different species of ants. 12,000 different species of ants. We've discovered that there are more than 34,000 different species of fish, We've discovered five kinds of beetles, but only four are recognized by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> See, you know what the fifth one is if you know your home, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're aware. Uh, we've discovered, actually, that there are more than 350,000 different types of beetles, not the ones that play music, the ones that, that, that creep on the ground, right? 350,000 different species of beetles, It's one of the most uh, diverse insects that exist out there. Now pulling out a little bit, uh, as we look at the stars, we've estimated that there are over one septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros behind it. And that's just an estimation. bringing it back in we've we've we know there are over 7 billion people on the planet and each one of us is made and and, comp- and contains over 30 trillion cells So when God created and he spoke things into existence, let us not see this as some um, 2D picture of what God has created. We must see this for the reality of what it is. It is extremely complex, extremely beautiful, and extremely expansive. God spoke and he created all of these things. But this call... We see this in the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. This creation mandate that God gave for us to fill the earth was not just a call for procreation, but a call for complex, well, it was a complex call to fill the earth as people who image God. The great creator. To fill it and have dominion over it. And to image our creator who created us. And one of the ways in which uh, we image God through creating is, is creating ourselves. We see this early on in our development. We see this early on as, as, as children, right, um, that they want to create out of whatever is around them. Blocks, you're getting towers and castles, right? Uh, you give them blankets and pillows, you're going to get a blanket fort in your, in your living room. Right, you you give them paper and crowns. They will use all of it up. They you, they will not be a blank piece of paper in your home if you don't if you don't put some restrictions on it. They'll use all your glitter, all your staples, all your tape. And this is not just a personal rant. Okay. <laughs> but they will use it all because they want to create. There's something intrinsic about who we are that needs to create. They take these images that they see in their minds and they put them on paper. They see the beauty of the world around them and they want to recreate it for themselves. And as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, we love this stuff, we eat it up. My mom has way too many pictures that my kids have drawn. Like to a degree, I'm like mom, please throw them away. Some of them, at least. But a three-year-old's family portrait will be a showcased piece of art in your home. It will stay on the fridge way past the time which it should. The whole family will stop watching the most important game of the year to watch their kids uh, have their little musical performance or, or their play that they've created in the first couple quarters of the game, and we will stop everything, and we will watch, and by stop everything, I mean we will hit the mute button and keep the game going, (laughs) but we will watch. We will give them their attention because we know that there is something beautiful about this display of creativity. We create, and what we create showcases the beauty we see in our world, and what a beautiful world we do live in. Artists and creators take painstaking time to recreate what they have seen with their eyes, sunsets, mountainscapes. They take this incredible amount of time to recreate this. On a, on a, a recent vacation, my wife and I just, um, we went and we were on a beach and we saw this photographer standing there with his, with his camera on a tripod pointed at the sunset, waiting For the right time, because he has in his mind a picture of what he has seen, and his desire is to capture that moment to share with people, also, probably to make a profit, but to share with people. And we buy that, we want that, we want that in our lives to display because it is a picture of something that is beautiful. There's there's an apologetic, a a defense of the faith that exists um, called the the argument, uh, the aesthetic argument or the argument from beauty. Richard Swinburne is a leading proponent of this argument for beauty and he says this about beauty. God has reason to make a basically beautiful world, although also reason to leave some of the beauty or ugliness of the world within the power of the creatures to determine In consequence, if the world is beautiful, that fact would be evidence enough for God's existence. Poets and painters and ordinary men down through the centuries have long admired the beauty of the orderly procession of the heavenly bodies, the scattering of the galaxies through the heavens, and in some ways random, but in other ways orderly, and the rocks and the sea and the wind interacting on earth the spacious firmament on high, and all the blue ethereal sky, the water lapping against the old eternal rocks and the plants of the jungle uh, and, of temperature, and, and of temperate climates, contrasting with the desert and the Arctic wastes. Who in his senses would deny that here is not beauty and abundance? And God does not just create beautiful landscapes. He does that. He does that. But in his commands to Moses and, in, and later to Solomon, he gives explicit detail to create works of art, of art for the tabernacle and for the temple. If you have your Bibles, you can turn just to the right a couple of, of chapters into Exodus 31. Exodus 31, uh, I'll be reading from uh, verses 1 through 11. This is what the scriptures tell us. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. "...the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizemech, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability." that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all I have commanded you, they shall do. Here we see, as Tim Keller would put it, God is creating another world within our world, inside of the tabernacle and temple. But he's doing this with explicit detail. He gives his people instruction in what and how to decorate the interior. From the size, to the shape, to the materials used, down to the ingredients of making specific oil and incense to be burned and used. And God refers to these acts, these things, of the stuff that he's putting inside of the tabernacle as to devise artistic designs. To create something beautiful. To create something beautiful. Something that is pleasing and enjoyable. And we see this even echoed um, through, through, through the Lord's prayer. Like, on earth as it is in heaven, the tabernacle and the temple are both ornate expressions of the heavenlies. In it, we see the expressive representation of God's creative and imaginative design. The elaborateness in which God designs is expressive of his nature and character. To deny this as image bearers in our own lives and worship puts a proverbial mute button on the expressiveness of, of God in his designing of us and giving us his image. If we are to image God, we should express the creativity the art and the expression of god himself by making things beautiful art that directs its viewers heavenward is the goal we don't art was never designed merely to expire on itself but it was designed for praise and appreciation and enjoyment and another thing about this verse in chapter 31's passage is chapter 31, and something that we haven't seen since Genesis 1, verse 2, is we've seen the Spirit of God being, um, being sent out for a purpose. And this is right after, right after the Israelites have come out of Egypt, right? We don't see God saying, I'm sending my Spirit into Moses to lead you out. I'm I'm doing this specifically to lead you out of Israel. No, we see God using and exercising the Holy Spirit for the purpose of creating art and beauty. Guys, this is, this is incredible for us to note. God deeply cares for his worship, but in the, his worship, he also has an expressiveness that he cares about. He cares about beauty. He's very concerned with beauty because as David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God is super concerned with beauty because he knows that beauty communicates something. Created things communicate something, which moves us To our next point, communicating through our creation. Arthur C. Danton, the art critic of the publication The Nation, once described a work of art that gave him, and I quote, a sense of obscure but inescapable meaning. Artists, writers, composers, musicians, craftsmen are all communicating something with their art. Not everything that is created is Art, but all art is created. That which is normative and plain and simple isn't explicitly art, but it does, however, communicate something. This is why people, and you may be these people who um, remodel things, one of the first things people do when they move into a new home is they paint, right? We adapt things to meet our personal aesthetic. You didn't wear what you wore today because you saw it and you're like, well, that's ugly. I want that. And I will wear that. No, we, uh, when given the opportunity to choose, we choose based off of our own preferences and views of what is ultimately beautiful or, at the very least, what we want people to believe about us is true. What we believe about life comes out in how we express it. If you don't believe that life has meaning, that will come out in how you express it. Art, um, there's a genre of art called postmodern art, art that ultimately has no purpose. There's a story by Ravi Zacharias and how he's captured this idea, his first interactions with postmodern art. He says, I remember lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in this country. I was minutes away from beginning my lecture and my host was driving past a new building called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. He said, this is America's first postmodern building. I was startled for a moment, Ravi said. He said, um, what is a postmodern building? His host said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, If life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design and meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built, and somebody paid for it. So Ravi responds. So his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? His host said, That's correct. Ravi responded with, did he do the same with the foundation? All of a sudden there was silence, Ravi recounts. You see, you, can, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we could like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a moment. I love, one, Ravi is just a great storyteller and how he also is a, very, a quick-witted man. Um, and he was a gift to the church. But this picture of, of post postmodern art is a picture of what that person believes life is and life is about, and he expressed it in that art. Ultimately, this is the result of art without meaning. It loses the artist and its viewers. This is why many famous artists have committed suicide, because for them, their art lacked ultimate meaning, and they lost themselves in their art. Now we can contrast postmodern art with two of the greatest composers maybe to ever walk the earth, Bach and Beethoven, who we still talk about today, who had explicit purpose for their music, which was the glory of God. Leonard Bernstein once rhapsodized about the effects Beethoven had on him. He said this, Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, yeah, that's the word. When you get that feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen in that instant, in that context, then chances are you're listening to Beethoven. Melodies, fuges, rhythms, leave those to Tchaikovsky and Hinderments and Ravels. Our boy has the real good stuff the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish, something is right in the world. There's something that checks throughout, that follows its own laws consistently, something we can trust, something that will never let us down. Along with uh, my wife, I give much of my seminary experience, was carried on the backs and shoulders of Yo-Yo Ma's box-unaccompanied cello suites that was constantly playing for me. It was a source of, of concentration and beauty and just um, also blocked out a lot of the noise of my children. Um, but it was enjoyable and it was, it was it was meaningful. Bach, who wrote at the bottom of each page of his concertos and music, the letters S-D-G, which are abbreviated the Latin soli deo gloria, which means, glory to God alone. These men wrote and and created with divine purpose, and they created things that are beautiful and that have transcended time and place. These men created from a position of what they knew about God and the gospel, and it came out in their art. And what we create communicates what we believe about life. What God created in the tabernacle and the temple was for beauty's sake, but he created because it was good for him to display his beauty and goodness in these mediums. In creating art, we don't have to be explicit on our purpose or message in the art itself. It can be the the medium itself uh, that is the communication. In, in fact, uh, Francis Schaeffer says this: "says a work of art has value itself." For some, this principle may seem too obvious to mention, but for many Christians, it's unthinkable. And yet, we miss the point. We miss the very essence of art. Art is not something we merely analyze for value for its intellectual content. It is something to be enjoyed. The Bible says that the artwork in the tabernacle and in the temple was for beauty's sake. We in the same way, like we don't, we don't sit down at a sunset and try to figure out what God's intention here was. That would ruin the sunset. Like imagine sitting on like the white sand beaches of the Caribbean, right? With someone, the sun's going down, the water lapping up on the shore, the, the pink blue and orange hues that exist in the sky at that moment and the person next to you starts talking trying to figure out and analyze the intellectual value of the sunset like bro be quiet right finish whatever's in your cup and enjoy this because this is art this is beauty and is meant to be appreciated and experienced and yet in that same moment right uh, we sometimes, as Christians, we, we need to to validate our art. And what we see in the sunset, we don't see some kitschy phrase or Bible verse coming out in the in the um, in the clouds to justify what we are seeing. Right? You are my masterpiece doesn't show up in the sky. Art can communicate without being explicit. Modern Christians believe that art has to be explicitly Christian to be enjoyed. We have separated the sacred and the secular to a degree which takes away the joy and beauty of art. That's maybe why we haven't pursued it well. Popular Christian art has been, at least for the last 50 years, somewhat of a joke. Michael Horton captures this in saying, It is only when our art becomes second rate that we have to create a special niche for it and justify it by the moral and evangelistic use it serves for the Christian community. So, how do we, as created creators whose creations communicate, not make bad art? Or at the very least, stop uh, the bad art? Uh, we should, and this is our last point this morning, create and pursue that which is good, true, and beautiful. In the creation of the world, God creates everything good as is echoed throughout the creation account. But he also created everything true. God is truth, and from him, he must create everything true. Additionally, everything he created is beautiful. We can summarize this by going, um, uh, there's, there's a, the goodness that basically everything God created was uncorrupted. Everything had a sense of rightness about itself. This is the ethic in which God creates in the same way, truth. Everything that was created was also also worked within its purpose and in bounds. What we see in the book of Job is God put the earth on its axis. He set bounds uh, for the oceans, not to exceed this point. He is very expi- explicit in how he creates, which is a philosophical intent. There's truth in that. He also creates from beauty, which means everything, therefore, is beautiful in its design Closely tied together is God's beauty and God's glory. His glory and his beauty uh, are intertwined, they're intermixed, which is why we see, as we read in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The beauty of creation declares his glory. This is the aesthetic that exists. This triad of creation should be, for for the Christian, of utmost concern. In imaging God, in imaging God's creation, we should pursue that which is good, that which is true, and that which is beautiful. We should also create in those realms as well. The famed writer Alexander Yitzin in his Nobel Prize lecture reflected upon this idea. He says this, and so perhaps that old trinity of truth And good and beauty is not just a formal, outworn formula it used to seem to us during our heady, materialistic youth. If the crests of these three trees join together, as the investigators and explorers used to affirm, and if the two obvious, two straight branches of truth and good are crushed or amputated and cannot reach the light, yet perhaps the whimsical unpredictable, unexpected branch of beauty will make their way through and soar up to that very place in a way to perform the work for all three. And in that case, it was not a slip of the tongue for Dostoyevsky to say, beauty will save the world, but a prophecy. After all, he was given the gift of seeing much and he was extraordinarily illumined. And consequently, perhaps art and literature can, in actual fact, help the world today. You see, we need beauty, but for Christians, we also need truth and goodness. Not just one, but we need them all. The world, though, needs art. It needs art because it needs to see the beauty of God. As Christians, we need to be concerned with art, maybe even in a new way. Too many times we've been very utilitarian uh, in our approach to art and filling the earth. Uh, We've found the cheapest, the most basic way for us to fill the earth. Particularly in the church, we've believed the lie that the uh, the, the aesthetic doesn't matter, that form and function are all we need. We have strayed from the goodness uh, of art and beauty, like the Lutheran defector Andres Karlstadt, who destroyed a lot of the icons during the, uh, the Christian Reformation. We have erred to the extreme and have seen beauty as the enemy of truth when in fact it can be its companion and it is its companion. Christians must engage with the arts. Along with politics and media and education, these arenas communicate the most with a lost and dying world. Art can infiltrate the darkness of this world with precision and intensity. And if you are concerned uh, with the culture and the way that culture is going, uh, I might encourage you to take the advice of Andy Crouch that said, the only way to change the culture is to create more of it. I believe that as Christians, we have the greatest access to what is good, true, and beautiful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have the greatest stories to tell. How can we communicate these truths, though, um, if we are scared to engage in those arenas? For us, I feel like we have the greatest story. Uh, uh, Mikado Fujimura said this. He says, we create beauty from brokenness. He's a famous painter. He's also a a PCA elder at his church uh, in New York. And uh, he... Is, is, like I said, he's is a, is a famed painter, and he takes these materials. Literally, what he sees in how he paints is these crushed materials that now create something beautiful on his canvases. And he said that is the picture of the gospel. We see, we create beauty from brokenness. In creating beauty from brokenness, we are imaging the story of Jesus You see, we have, in the story of Jesus, redemption and restoration. We, as Christians, get to tell the full story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, where the world is only able to work out of the realm and from the viewpoint of the fall. We are able to to give hope in the restoration and redemption of humanity. And this is the most beautiful of stories. The image and the sounds and the expression of hope that is found in redemption and restoration through Jesus Christ should for each and every one of us be a motivating factor to create and create things that are beautiful. As the church, we must image this, but we also cannot get lost in it. We are not, as Abraham Kuyper says, to lose ourselves in the aesthetic form The word and sacrament should not be relegated to the background for the church. It cannot be replaced with ambiguity, artistic drama, mimicry, or dance. Now, these things were meant to enhance, but never to replace. But as Michael Horton says in his books, Where in the World is the the Church? He says, this is why art and religion require an independent existence and not unrelated Not an unrelated or isolated existence, but a distinct existence. When Christians lose their faith in the power of the word, they return again to graven images or created images. But artistic expression is not a reliable path to God any more than the feelings or the sentiments of a non-Christian religion. Because biblical faith is based on the announcement of what happened in history. When the God-man was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, Christianity is at its greatest danger when sinful, when sinful creatures, even Christians, attempt to discover religious truth from within. And yet, art is a deeply psychological and emotional Enterprise that is meant to satisfy entirely different criteria than that of revealed religion. By definition, emanating from the withinness of the artist, art is not supposed to be intellectualized or spiritualized, but accepted for what it is no more and no less. A divinely given human activity that is designed to reflect the truth the beauty and the goodness of the Creator by reflecting His creation. Even if non-Christians do not recognize this purpose, they cannot help but reflect it, bearing as they do the image of God. So for us, may we, in imaging our Creator, create, knowing that everything that we create communicates something, Therefore, as Christians, we should create things that are good, things that are true, and things that are beautiful. Let's pray. Creator of heaven and earth and everything in it, you are fully God, fully true, fully beautiful, and fully good. May we, as your creation, image you in what we say and do and create God of mercy, may we as your people push back darkness with an affront of gospel-informed art. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to do this. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.